0: Tonight's talk is about the beauty of change and the change of beauty. And this talk was inspired by being in this juncture of the seasons here between winter and spring. Often people remark to me, because I'm from a place where it doesn't have so many changing um, distinctions in the weather, that it must be hard for me to come here to the snow or the cold from a place where the temperature stays very mild, actually. Usually is in the 70s down at the sea level, maybe the 80s, <clears throat> goes up to the 80s. And people even apologize to me for the weather sometimes. But actually, I quite enjoy the change. Uh, it's... It's magical, as I said to many of you at the beginning of my time here. It's funny how it's all so relative, too. I call home and I ask my husband, we're always talking about rain, or is there enough rain? How's the weather? And he'll say, it's cold, it's in the 60s. And he'll say, how is it over there? And I'll say, it's warm, it's in the 60s, (laughs) you know. It's just all so relative. I do enjoy the change of the seasons here. I used to come here uh, to this part of the land of the world every um, end of fall and beginning of winter to teach the three-month course. And even though it was cold and snowy, I I really loved it. Uh, Being in New England is it's something where you can really take in the changing experience of your body to the weather, of the weather itself, and really there's so many teachings from nature that make its mark in our heart so much more deeply than words do. And um, But we try, you know, we try with words to point out what it is for us that makes a difference that goes deep into our hearts. Probably, like all of you, when I take a walk, I notice how things are changing around here. I'm struck by the barrenness of the trees and the bushes and how they can look so dead. And, but I know deep inside that there are going to be leaves on them and they're going to burst forth, some of them, with blossoms and foliage. The stillness of the snow when it's there. Sometimes I notice, just as I did yesterday and the day before when I took a walk, how it becomes the flowingness of water, the movement of water. And um, I love to stand in front of flowing water, so I took some time. When I stopped where the flowing streams were going, even though there were little to just stand there where they were flowing so they could flow. Their energy could flow through my own body which is made up of a lot of water and um, go to the other side of the street or the stream, you know, underneath the street where the big tunnels of, uh, where they can, the water can flow. The stillness of snow, the flowingness of water, the pushing up of the leaves, of the bulbs. I saw them just the other day around the driveway as you drive up to the admin office here. From the darkness underground, reaching up to the light, to the warmth. And so from nothing, you know, just the barrenness of land. A few days ago, I see these leaves of the bulbs coming up through the kind of the hard, the hardness of the soil. And just outside my window where I I sit and I, you know, try to think of things to say to you (laughs) that would (laughs) make a difference somehow, I just stop every once in a while to look out to the buds that were so small, you know, and every day I see them a little bit bigger a little more fuller. They were just bumps on the branches, and now they're like buds, and they're loosening up, and they're getting bigger, and pretty soon they're going to blossom into some flower. I don't know what yet. Maybe I won't be here, but I'll probably see them in the pictures that all the wonderful photographers take of around here. So there's tightness, and Loosening and opening and blossoming, and that's what we're doing. That's what our hearts are doing here. <clears throat> we have this precious opportunity to take that all in. And as somebody said today, just to tune in you know, it doesn't have to be words, it can be nature. Just to tune into all that somehow. Our hearts are moving along with that somehow. We don't have to think about it. It really just happens. The beauty of nature, the possibility of transformation. There, there are these promises all around, like this is the nature of things. It's telling us everywhere. This is the nature of things, to open, to blossom, to bear fruit. It's telling us all around us and within us, And we have a chance to listen deeply to those messages. When we can be truly honest and clear and not obsessed by the old habit patterns of mind that kind of we drown in sometimes and it happens, we see that this is true, that there is a possibility for transformation. We're not always in those places of obsession those um, kind of potholes of the mind, those uh, cow paths of the mind, as I, one of my yogi friends called them. It's often hard, I know that, from my own practice. But I often have to remember to and, and believe for each one of you when you can't believe it yourselves or support you when you believe it that we wouldn't be here if we didn't believe in transformation. There's something deep within us that knows that it's really, really possible. The heart can blossom with wisdom. Liberation is possible for us. If we didn't believe it, we wouldn't be here. But somehow we are, even though a lot of the times we wonder And we want to go home. And we are going home. The home that is really beyond the home that we call, wherever we live or with our families. So yes, I I do want to acknowledge the shame and the sadness and the self-judging and the feelings of humiliation and the ways we feel inadequate and on and on. You know, it's such a different mix for each one of us, but each one of us in our own ways has bits and pieces of that, some more than the other, depending on what the karmic unfolding is for us in the moment. But somewhere in between or beneath or that we can sense is beyond, maybe just beyond the bend there, we know that. The potential for awakening, the greater potentials for us are there. Sometimes we consciously believe it. Sometimes it's unconscious, but we still keep going. We have this uncanny faith that even all this can change. This uh, lack of faith in ourselves, this fear. We have this uncanny faith that it can change, that transformation is possible. We're not always caught in the default setting of the mind, you know, that those habit patterns that come around over and over again. Those of you who have been here for a while see that the habit patterns come, but we're often not caught. There's a possibility of just being able to see it with the space that comes with mindfulness. We're not fueled or fed by it. Simply giving that mindful meta attention, there's that ability to just see it arise, see it change, and see it pass away eventually. We think that we might be... Uh, caught by the same thing over and over again. But actually, you know, it's a different set of conditions coming up, not the same. I wonder if I told you the story already, <clears throat> because I gave the talk on impermanence about, I don't remember when I give stories sometimes, so you'll have to forgive me. Um, I went to the teacher once and. I was suffering a lot with pain in the body. And then it changed. You know, the the ability to see, to respond to the pain differently was stronger than being overcome by the pain. So the pain left, and uh, there was a lot of ease in the body, in the mind. When I left that retreat, at the end of the retreat, I asked the teacher, will this ever come back again? And he said, no. It will never come back again. And that was the the hell realm retreat for me. That was a really hard retreat. And the next long retreat that I did with him four years later, it came up with even that pain, or a pain, the pains came up with even more rigor. And it was very, very difficult. And I went to him and I said, you told me that there wouldn't be this pain again, you know. And I was like giving him a little bit of, you know, my own, uh, you told me. And he said, oh no, he said, that isn't that that pain before. This is a different pain. (laughs) It's a different set of conditions. But reminded me that your mind has the ability to respond to this differently. I've seen how your mind has the ability to do that. Not in those exact words. Other patterns become predominant, like mindfulness, the power of mindful attention accompanied by compassion, by wisdom, by loving kindness, by equanimity, by other beautiful forces of the mind this is the beauty of change that those beautiful forces become more predominant and they're uh, the ones that we live, our heart lives on our heart is nourished by and not caught in the other forces of fear and doubt inadequacy rage and blame so it becomes no longer a question of faith. Experientially, we understand deeply that transformation is possible. It's not a matter of faith. It's, it's there in an unshakable way. A sure heart's release, the Buddha called it, a heart released of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is what renunciation is all about. It's not about renouncing our lives or being a parent or having a partner or not having things that we need in life. On a deep, in a deep way, it's about renouncing greed, hatred and delusion. This is the sure heart's release, the promise of the Buddha and all the great masters. All the great teachers. This was the lion's roar of the Buddha that we all have this potential, the beauty of change. Of course, it's not always so easy. As T.S. Eliot puts it, it's costing not less than everything. We know that from being with our moment to moment experience. But nevertheless, We continue. We embark on the journey and we take the next step one moment at a time. We tune into what each moment brings. Open to it. And as Somerset Mom says, the passing moment is all we can be sure of. We have faith in that. We know that more and more deeply, experientially. He says it is Only common sense to extract the utmost value from it. Only common sense to extract the utmost value from it. One of the people I came across in my Dharma, um, path, a yogi, said, you know, this Dharma, the Buddha's teaching, is just advanced common sense. Nothing more than that. It makes so much sense. It's not a blind belief. It's like seeing what's true and going for that. Seeing what gives our hearts energy to keep opening gently but clearly to the truth of how things are and accepting it with more courage, with more compassion Knowing what is onward leading and turning our hearts and minds in that direction. Seeing what we can unlearn, what is possible to relinquish. What areas, what conditions come together where our hearts are entangled and lost in the quagmire of life? where there's ignorance and confusion. So we learn to be more and more aware of those areas. More and more as we continue on the path, we not only become aware of greed and hatred, which are so much more predominant or easily seen than ignorance and delusion, but more and more of you, of us, are seeing where there is confusion, delusion, ignorance, and waking up to that before it turns into greed or hatred. You know what I'm talking about, for those of you who have seen that. The beauty of change is that we see what's really possible. It's not always all of a sudden. Mostly, it's bit by bit, little by little. It's kind of like... it happens all of a sudden that we wake up and we see, oh, we understand what life is all about. When the, when the Dalai Lama was asked, um, do you feel like you're making progress in your practice? Do you feel like you've, you've come a long way? And the Dalai Lama said, uh, you know, when I look back a year, I don't see much progress. When I look back five years, maybe a little, little bit, he said with his hands, little bit. And 10 years, yeah, I can see. And 20 years, yes. So even for someone like His Holiness, it's true. That's what he says. This is what William Stafford says about the dream of now. When you wake up to the dream of now, you carry day out of the dark like a flame. When spring comes forth, comes north, and flowers unfold from earth and its even sleep, you lift summer on with your breath, lest it be lost ever so deep. Your life you live by the light you find and follow it on as well as you can. Carrying through darkness wherever you go that one little fire that will start again and again. And this is our our faith in transformation, the beauty of change and seeing that beauty in our own hearts, believing in that beauty for our own hearts. There is an often told story in the Dhamma circles of the four heavenly messengers. I'll give you the short version. At the age of 29, Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, decided to leave the palace and to explore what was outside of the palace walls in the city, beyond the palace walls. And by the way, this is what we're doing now. Even though we're secluded in this beautiful refuge, hermitage, still we're looking outside what is beyond, uh, beyond what we normally go to. We're seeing possibilities places that kind of get us stuck, and how to get beyond them. So this is a metaphor for all of that also. So he decided to leave the palace to explore outside. He was overly protected in his life by his father, the king. He lived a life of luxury in a palace where the king had abolished all unpleasantness. He was surrounded by... Uh, beautifully scented flowers by people who were young and beautiful. No old age, sickness, or death was around him. All unpleasant sights and sounds were removed. So as he rode outside of the palace into the city, accompanied by his charioteer, Chana, he encountered An old person, bent over, wrinkled skin, brittle bones, sagging. A sick person, suffering greatly with disease. A corpse, lying lifeless on some kind of a a wooden pallet. With people around the corpse, wailing and crying. And he questioned his charioteer, is this how it is outside of the palace walls? And does this happen to everyone? And his charioteer, being the teacher to him at that time, said, yes, sire, this happens to everyone. Old age, sickness, and death comes to everyone. We are all subject to these conditions. And the Buddha-to-be said, even in this body, even my own body. And Chana, the charioteer, said, yes, that is so. Actually, this was Prince Siddhartha's call to awakening. His facing these heavenly messengers, touching into a deep sense of inquiry that connected him with many past lives, where wisdom started to arise about the nature of life the birth and death of life touching into a place where he knew he was searching for lifetimes for an answer to suffering and that's what he really wanted he didn't want to be the ruler of any kingdom no matter how great, this is what his father wanted him to be why his father protected him But really, he wanted to find an answer to life and death. What was beyond these two? His search for something beyond was greater than anything else that he held dear in his life. And at that time, he said, why should I, who am subject to decay and death, Also seek that which is subject to decay and death. What is it that is born? What is it that dies? So these heavenly messengers that called to the Buddha are calling to us in our lives. We see it in our own bodies and minds. Many of us at the age that we're at And because life is as it is around us with so much more aging for many of us, we see that in our parents' sickness and death. Very close to us in the past year, there have been many more in this past year that have been near and dear to me, sick and have died than any other year of my life. So we're awakening to that. But are we also awakening to the possibility of understanding beyond that, as the Buddha did and all great masters of time? Are we awakening to the truth of life? What is beyond death? How can we see beyond suffering? The fourth heavenly messenger was an important one in the Buddha's life. He was a mendicant monk in saffron robes, walking peacefully through the city, through all the old age and sickness and death that was around him. So Siddhartha asked, What was this person? Who was this person? And was told, by his charioteer that this was a mendicant monk, a monk who had gone beyond um, the trappings that he felt were trapping him from knowing what was beyond suffering. And so it was for this person at this time in this person's life to find an answer and to take that path in finding an answer it's not for everyone but it was for this mendicant monk seeing that peaceful person that person who was so serene going through the hubbub of the city changed the path of Prince Siddhartha and he chose a path that went towards understanding the nature of life more profoundly. I want to read you a story that, from the first time that I heard it, I was really struck by it. It really helped me to see the possibility of how one person's life can change many lives. And Sharon tells the story beautifully in her book about loving kindness. So I just want to read what she's written. I couldn't say it better. This is about King Ashoka. He was really an emperor in northern India about 250 years after the time of the Buddha. In the early years of his reign, this emperor was bloodthirsty and greedy for the expansion of his empire. He was very unhappy. One day after a terrible battle that he had launched in order to acquire more territory, he walked on the battlefield among the appalling spectacle of corpses, of men and animals, being devoured by the carrion-eating birds. He was aghast at the carnage he he had caused. And just then, a Buddhist monk came walking across the battlefield. The monk didn't say a word, but his being was radiant. He was with deep peace and happiness. And seeing that monk, Ashoka thought, why is it that I, having everything in the world, I feel so miserable? Whereas this monk has nothing in the world, apart from the robes he wears and the bowls he carries. Yet he looks so serene and happy in this terrible place. Ashoka made a momentous decision. He pursued the monk and asked him, Are you happy? If so, how did this come to be? In response, the monk, who had nothing, introduced the emperor, who had everything, to the Buddha's teachings. As a consequence of this chance encounter, Ashoka devoted himself to the practice and study of the Buddha's teachings and changed the entire nature of his reign. He stopped waging wars. He no longer allowed people to go hungry. He transformed himself from a tyrant into one of history's most respected rulers. His son and daughter carried Buddhism from India to Sri Lanka, where Buddhism took root. And from there it went on to other countries, Burma, Thailand, Tibet, Japan, Korea, etc. Our access to these teachings today, so many centuries and cultural transitions later, are because of the direct result of his ability to see the peacefulness of that radiant, serene being walking across the field of torture and uh, that kind of terror with a heart open and the ability to continue his life. One person's serenity changed the course of history and delivered us to the Buddhist path of happiness I remember uh, my first time when I went to Burma, quite a few years ago now. I went to be temporarily ordained. I I knew that uh, lifetime ordination was not for me. I'm a mother and grandmother and all of that, family life. I'm devoted to having a family life and being liberated within that kind of dukkha, so to say. We went to stay with um, a Buddhist family who had a and b They still have a and b there, of course. And it was wonderful to be with them. And on the first morning, the uh, woman of the household, who's a benefactress to some of the monasteries in the area, asked us if we would like to offer um, food to the monks who were coming around on alms round in the morning. And so I, I said, yes, I would love to. And so I went out there with the others who were there. And she had prepared the rice and all the things, the curries that we would give to them. So we go out there with the, in the respectful way um, to put something over, over our, um, to put our shawls on in the particular way to stand on the street and take our shoes off and wait with bare feet until the monks come by. And so as the monks came around the corner, just seeing them in their saffron robes come around the corner so serenely in the dawn light, it really just brought these tears of happiness to my eyes to see how there are people in the world who are practicing in this way, like you all, who are bringing the teachings and the understanding of the Dharma, the truth of life, to that kind of depth. The serenity and the radiance of those monks as they came around the corner, and just seeing their robes flutter a little bit in the light wind of the morning. Oh, I felt it such a precious moment. And then being able to mindfully take, I was given the rice, mindfully take and give a spoonful of rice, a kind of um, big spoonful of rice to each one. It was so inspiring to watch as they mindfully took it. And that kind of peace and that kind of serene demeanor and that presence that I saw, not only in them, but as I went to the monastery that they came from to practice, the nuns and the lay women and the lay men who were there practicing, it really touches your heart and you see the possibility. Sometimes when it's so hard for me on the cushion, I remember that. I hearken back to those days and remember how people are walking in the morning to their place in the hall or from the hall to the eating hall we walked in a line together and um, it comes back to me that peacefulness and the body and mind are there again We don't have to be victims of the circumstances of our life. It helps us to understand deeply how our own lives can transform. We can be agents of change, like King Ashoka. Maybe not in that degree, but the little ripples that go out from our own hearts touch people very near us. Some of you have your own wonderful stories of how it's changed others that I've heard. You don't have to say much. You just have to be. One moment of turning our hearts to that potential of our lives really lets go of a lot of suffering. So we have these aspirations we need to pay attention to the simple aspiration to experience our highest potential, or however we say it. How do you say it? It's not kind of like a greedy, leaning into the future, clinging to some result uh, kind of experience. But it's an open-ended path when we see it, when we can see it that way. To just see the path is really open-ended. We never know what's we're going to come upon at any moment. Manindra used to say over and over again in the early years, we used to hear about nibbana, the unconditioned cessation of nama, rupa, mind and body. More and more, we used to hear it very often, but less and less we hear about that now. I like to say things like that. More often, so we really hear the possibility. But he used to say, any time it can happen. He says, I know people, I have seen people, even in the eating, taking one bite of food to their mouth, that enlightenment happens, awakening happens, nibbana happens. Even in a step in their walking meditation, it happens this way. Or like Ananda. You know, every many evenings he would tell the story be like Ananda, be very, very mindful. Ananda had to, he had to uh, reach at least first first path before the morning because he had to be able to join all the other disciples who were enlightened because Ananda had all the suttas, the, the discourses of the Buddha, in his heart, he could uh, mem- he memorized them by heart and he could expound on them by heart. So he had to be there. And so we heard the stories at night of how Ananda, just when he was going to sleep, he wasn't in the sitting posture, he wasn't in the standing posture, he wasn't in the lying posture, he was somewhere between standing and lying down. And that's when he became enlightened. So at any time, it can happen. Freedom can happen. It has to be this open-ended path. It's not a fixed goal. Because our understanding of freedom will change along the way. A fixed goal is very limiting. Again, I looked up the word aspire in the dictionary of etymology, and they said, it means to breathe into. And so what does that mean, to breathe into, to give life to, to give life to our aspiration by remembering it? Maybe it's, you you know your own words, but I hear these words, awakening to the truth, the peace that passes, passes understanding opening to the happiness that is peace. So let's stay in tune with that. So back to the four heavenly messengers. We open to them as we move along on that open-ended path. We accept them more and more easily as we see them before us in our lives. Just bring out the times when you've seen old age sickness and death and how it's changed your life maybe little by little but how it has changed your life and your ability to respond to it differently it stands out for me a lot these days, old age sickness and death aging seeing the elderly I really, um, I treasure my connection with the elderly. You know, I, before I leave the island, I try to see my elders before I go because I don't know if they'll be there when when I get back. Even if I just drop by and say, I just want to tell you I love you and give you a hug. It means so much to me. Also when I see the young, my grandchildren, it's so strange that I see them. It's like, it's a little bit like a magical trick. I just see their faces age and how they will someday grow old and die. How will it be for them? You know, the mind always goes to that. It stands out for me a lot. The Buddha said, there are these five facts that one should reflect upon often, whether one is a woman or a man, a lay or ordained person. Which five? So the first one has to do with aging. Aging. I'm subject to aging, have not gone beyond aging. This is the first fact that one should reflect on often, whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained. Now, based on what line of reasoning should one often reflect that I am subject to aging, have not gone beyond aging? There are beings who are intoxicated, with a typical youth's intoxication with youth. Because of that intoxication with youth, they conduct themselves in a bad way in body, in speech, and in mind. But when they often reflect on that fact that youth's intoxication with youth can either be entirely abandoned or grow weaker, it's a... It's a growing wisdom in their hearts. Now a disciple of the noble ones considers this. I am not the only one subject to aging who has not gone beyond aging. To the extent that there are beings, past and future, passing away and re-arising, all beings are subject to aging, have not gone beyond aging. When he or she often reflects on this, the factors of the path take birth. He or she sticks with that path, develops it, cultivates it. As he or she sticks with that path, develops it and cultivates it, the fetters are abandoned, the obsessions destroyed. That's the first contemplation on aging. And the Buddha goes through all of the aging illness and death and the understanding of karma in that way. I want to uh, read you the poem, poem of Ambipali. This was from the Psalms of the Sisters, the Teragatha. This woman was astonishingly beautiful. She was so beautiful she was named the chief courtesan of this great city called Visali in the time of the Buddha. In time, she built a hermitage on her land and gave it to the Sangha, to the Buddha's uh, disciples and to the Buddha. So Ambapali was very beautiful, but she was growing old and things were happening to her body that she wrote about not dissimilar to the um, meditation on the 32 parts of the body. So this is actually a meditation, and I want to read you part of it, but not all of it, because it's quite long. Some of it can be humorous, too. The purpose of the poem is to jolt the listener into understanding one's own transience. She says, my hair was black and curly, the color of black bees. Now that I am old, it is like the hemp of trees. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. It was thick as a grove, and I parted it with a comb and pin. Now, because of old age, it is thin, very thin, This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My eyebrows were crescents painted well. Now they droop and are wrinkled as well. This is the teaching of the truth. My eyes flashed like jewels, long, black. Now they don't make anyone look back. (laughs) This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My teeth were beautiful the color of plantain buds. Now because of old age, they are broken and yellow. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My neck was beautiful like a polished conch shell. Now because of old age, it bends and bows. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My hands were beautiful, set off by rings, gold as a sun. Now because of old age, They are like radishes or onions. (laughs) This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My thighs were beautiful, like an elephant's trunk. Now because of old age, they are like bamboo stalks. (laughs) This is a teaching of one who speaks the truth. My feet were beautiful, delicate, as if filled with cotton. Now, because of old age, they are cracked and rotten. <laughs> this is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. This is how my body was. Now it is dilapidated, the place of pain, <laughs> an old house with the plaster falling off." I'd look at my own hands, you know, and. Just maybe in the last four or five years, I look at my hands and remember my mother because I used to look at my mother's hands all the time. You know, it was with the thought, oh, she works so hard. But then, but now I see my own hands and I, it's almost like seeing my mother's hands, you know, same shape, a lot of wrinkles, nothing helps, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You could get the most expensive lotion, you know. It just doesn't help. <laughs> you could wear gloves. Doesn't help. <laughs> Even the Buddha did not deny old age. He said, I am old, worn out, like a dilapidated cart held together with thin straps. That, those are his words. I am subject to aging, not gone beyond aging. It's a wonderful reflection. I'll offer the reflections tomorrow in the morning. I'm subject to illness, not gone beyond illness. It's good when we are sick and we're practicing to practice that contemplation. I remember once being in here at, um, in the course, the long course at, um, at IMS, and I had a fever and I was sick. And I felt like every movement I made, the body was aching, and it couldn't stand anything, you know. It didn't want to eat, and um, it was also hungry, and there was all kinds of things happening like that. And so I went to Joseph at that time, and I said, "I, I think I can't practice for a while. And he said, what do you mean not practice for a while? This is the very time to practice. This is the very time to bring your mind to what's going on and seeing it uh, as like it was, is in that moment. (laughs) I am subject to illness, have not gone beyond illness. Now based on what line of reasoning should one often reflect that I'm subject to illness? There are beings who are intoxicated with healthy person's intoxication with health. Because of this intoxication, they conduct themselves in an unwholesome way in speech and in mind. When they often reflect on that fact, that intoxication with health will either be entirely abandoned or grow weaker. So it can grow weaker when a person says, I am not the only one subject to illness. To the extent that there are other beings, past and future, passing away and re-arising, subject to illness, they have not gone beyond illness. When he or she often reflects on this, the factors of the path take birth. One develops that path cultivates it, and the fetters are abandoned, the obsessions destroyed. Then there is that great change in our lives or in those around us, death, that change, the great change, the change that changes us. It opens our hearts to the preciousness of life. All of us have experienced it. We know, I'm not speaking, um, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. We know how it is. It transforms how we relate to life. One of the protective reflections is a uh, reflection on death. Why is it a protection? Because It stops us from taking life for granted. You know, we see that over and over again with people around us, it can happen any time. It protects us from being arrogant about what we think we know. It dispels that ignorance that everything will remain the same. I am not beyond death. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond this. And by reflecting on this over and over again, the path opens up to us, the Buddha said, in his own way. When I was younger, I was not so open to this truth. I was very overly protective. I had three children. I was single. And I was uh, so protective of them that anything that happened, I would really get sick with worry. And... One of the teachers I met early on in my practice was Aya Kema, and she's a mother also, and then became a nun for the rest of her life when her child was uh, grown. And I think she got really just fed up with my being overprotective, and I would really I'd talk to her about this about the children, and she said to me one time, kind of in a Zen moment you must be able to see your children dead i didn't like her for a long time after that you know i just i thought oh, I, this is not my teacher but really i thought of that over and over again and actually i was working in a cemetery at that time in the office and my own daughter the youngest one would come home with pictures you know of me standing next to a body in a casket. And I'd say, well, why did you draw that? And she said, oh, my teacher said to ask me to draw a picture of what my, parent, my mother did. And I thought, "Geez, it's like my kindergarten child can draw this picture and face it, and I can't, you know? <laughs> and I just thought, I really have a lot to learn from this. Facing it, you know, just over and over again. I told a story earlier of how it was hard for me when I would see a lot of children die in the community, and I just couldn't take it. One time I just had to leave the office and go to the the valley, the EL Valley nearby, and sit on a rock and put my feet in the river. Carlos Castaneda, a writer whose teacher was Don Juan There's a story about him being at a restaurant in Marin County. A small group of people sat around his table, and someone nearby heard him uh, talking with the people at his table. And one of the persons asked him something like, "Um, I want to lead a spiritual life. What do you suggest? And the person listening thought that he was going to answer something like, oh, go to this shaman you know, take these mushrooms or whatever was the thing of the day, and you, you'll you open your mind and you'll see what a spiritual life is. But he didn't say that. He said, if you want to live a spiritual life, know that everyone you you see today will someday die. Everyone that you encounter in your life today will die. It's sobering, but... It's also opening. When we ex- accept the profundity of that, we live our lives with less fear because we're, we're less afraid of the fact of death. We're more courageous about it. It becomes clear to us what's important in our lives. Again, this is from uh, Don Juan to Carlos Castaneda that Carlos wrote about. This is about what's important to us. Death is your eternal companion. It is the hunter, and it is always at your left at an arm's length. It has always been watching, and it always will, until the day it taps you. How can you feel so important when you know death is stalking you? The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is watching you. The fact of your death is never pressed far enough. It is, only, it is the only wise advisor that you have. And whenever you feel that everything's going wrong and you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that's so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing matters outside its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women that live their lives as if death will never tap them. This really pierces my heart. Of course, there are are those we hold dear that leave us, pass on to another reality. There is sadness and death, and we feel it. It's like a big wave sometimes. We can't breathe for a few moments. Sometimes it's more gentle. We're human. We have feelings. Loss is painful. So when death is around us or close to us, I remember when Manindra died and when my mother died. Manindra used to tell me before, you are the flesh and blood of your mother, that's why mothers are so important, and when your mother dies, you'll feel it really clearly, and I did, and it was like a shock wave, and there was grief and a feeling of loss, and I let the tears flow, as mindful as I could be, and as opening to as much understanding as I could. And when Manindra died, I felt it. The waves go through the infinite air. I didn't even know he had died, really, but I knew he had died, really. And it was like I couldn't breathe. It was like a big wave had hit. So, of course... I'm going to tell you about the Buddha's death in a minute, but I wanted to tell you about this first because it gives a balance. There's a well-known story about a Tibetan Buddhist master whose son died suddenly from illness. Hearing him weep unconsolably, the disciples came and confronted him with their surprise. You taught us that all is an illusion and that we should not be attached. They also admonished him, why are you weeping and wailing? And the master answered immediately, indeed, all is an illusion, but the loss of a child is a most painful illusion. And so we understand and hold this paradox of life. When The Buddha was about to die. He called all of his disciples around him to let them know. And Ananda took it really hard. He went to his lodging, it is said. I'll read to you from the Sutta, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And the Venerable Ananda went into his lodging and stood lamenting, leaning on the doorpost. Alas, I am still a learner with much to do and the teacher is passing away who was so compassionate to me. Then the Lord inquired of the monks where Ananda was and they told him. So he said to a certain monk, Go, monk, and say to Ananda from me, Friend Ananda, the teacher summons you. Very good, Lord, said the monk, and so he did. Very good friend, Ananda replied to the monk, and he went to the Buddha, saluted him, and sat down by one side. And the Buddha said, Enough, Ananda. Do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you that all things pleasant and delightful are changeable? Subject to separation and becoming other. So how could it be, Ananda, Since whatever is born, become, compounded, is subject to decay, how could it be that it should not pass away? For a long time, Ananda, you have been in the Tathagata's presence, showing loving kindness in act of body, speech, and mind. Beneficially, blessedly, wholeheartedly, unstintingly, you have achieved much merit. Ananda, make the effort, and in a short time you will be free of all the corruptions. The Buddha could see that with his his omniscient eye. And at his death, the Buddha said to all the disciples, those who were around him, Now, bhikkhus, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay to die strive on untiringly these were the Tathagata's last words and the blessed and at the blessed Lord's final passing there was a great earthquake, terrible hair raising, accompanied by thunder and the venerable Anuradha uttered this verse no breathing in and out just with steadfast heart The sage who's free from clinging has passed away to peace. With mind unshaken, he endured all pains. By nibbana, the illumined mind is free. So this is the possibility for all of us. The possibility, the beauty of transformation and change. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.